0: When we saw, for example, the spiritual council of Donald Trump praying for the angels, that definitely cannot happen in France. That's laïcité. Laïcité forbids politicians to play too much the religious card, because we think it's not fair. And now, the good fight with Yasha Monk.
1: We are now once again in the midst of a terrible phase of exponential rise of new infections. The pandemic is back. And while the midterm outlook is looking increasingly optimistic, while it is now clear that we will eventually have a vaccine that will be safe and effective, there's many months to go until that saves us. So it is as important now as it was in March and April, and May of this year for governments to do their job to actually implement, test, trace, and isolate regimes and for all of us to be aware of our individual responsibility to contain the spread of this virus. For the end is in sight, many, many people might die between now and then. I've also been thinking about The way we think about which country is doing well and which country is doing badly, I'm struck by the fact that we compare a lot the United States and Canada, Germany, and the United States. And there's a reason for that. Germany and Canada have both done better than the United States. And a lot of that is the fault of the utter irresponsibility of Donald Trump. It's an easy thing to focus on. But in international comparison, I think it's actually the wrong way to think about it. What's really striking to me is that countries, both democratic and non-democratic in East Asia, have done so much better than either Canada and the United States or uh, all of those countries in Europe. It is not because these are collectivist countries that are willing to sacrifice the rights of the individual. Japan and South Korea have not restricted the freedom of citizens in more meaningful ways than Germany or Canada in the last eight or nine months. I don't think it's just because those countries have had past experience with other respiratory viruses uh, like SARS that may explain uh, why they were so quick of a mark in responding in March or April. It doesn't explain why we still don't have anything resembling an effective test, trace, and isolate regime in Europe or North America at this point. And so I think the reason may be a little bit different and a little bit deeper. It may be that economic growth was more recent in some of those East Asian countries, that there's still a bigger sense that they can meet new challenges, that there's more confidence in an ability to master the future. And this should make us ask more critical questions of our own societies. It should make us angry that we cannot muster the same amount of collective ambition and solidarity. This is crucial if we are to avoid a similar failure with future pandemics, which may well be on the way. It's also crucial if we want to defend democracy. For if we basically give in to the feeling that we'll never be able to solve our problems, never be able to accomplish great things, that our partisan divisions are so deep that there will always be gridlock, that is the biggest invitation I can think of for strongmen and wannabe dictators to win votes by saying that we just need to bin our political system and start from scratch. This week, it's a real pleasure to introduce Caroline Forest to you. Caroline is a member of the Board of Advisors at Persuasion. She was a journalist at Charlie Hebdo for a long time. And when many of her former colleagues were murdered in the terrible attacks about five years ago, she became a kind of spokesperson for the magazine, defending it against some of the unfair attacks on it, which continued after that terrible day in Paris. Caroline is one of the most interesting defenders of the French model of laïcité, which has been in the news lately, because the Anglophone press, the New York Times and the Washington Post in particular have attacked France and blamed it in many ways, victim blamed it, I would say, for the terrible beheadings that have taken place in the country over the last days and weeks. And there's been an interesting back and forth debate between President Macron and some of these American newspapers. There's a great article on persuasion about some of the coverage we've seen in the United States. So Caroline and I debate the French notion of laïcité. I'm sympathetic to her points, for I disagree with her on a few particulars, and you'll see us uh, getting into that in quite a lot of detail. I think it'll really help you understand, I hope, some of these really important debates about how to defend liberal values against both terrorists and against some of the people who seem to blame liberal societies when things like terrorist attacks take place. Caroline, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you, Yesha. I love your work.
1: Well, I love your work. And of course, you're a kindly a member of our board of advisors at Persuasion. And I look forward to this opportunity to talk a little bit about this strange kind of political moment we now find ourselves in. You know, obviously, there's been a series of terrible terrorist attacks in France over the last weeks and months. And I think there's been a lot of raw anger from the French government, but also from a lot of French people about the portrayal of France and the portrayal of those weeks in the U.S. media. Tell us a little bit about what's been happening in France and what the frustration with the portrayal of that outside of France has been.
0: It's already very painful to be in this situation where you fear every week to learn about a new terrorist attack, a new behaving. And every week the question is, is it going to be a teacher? Is it going to be someone praying in a church? Is it going to be just someone uh, seated at a terrace to drink a cafe? So yes, we're living troubled times, but I would say that it is even more painful to read some American magazine about it because the coverage has been so, so unfair. And more than unfair, sometimes we add this feeling of victim blaming, really, truly. Like if laïcité in France or freedom of speech at the end was the cause of terrorism that we are facing. It's an incredible reverse of responsibilities. It's really, truly astonishing to read in some serious magazine I'm not talking about social networks. I'm really talking about the New York Times, the Washington Post. So what
1: difference between Twitter and the New York Times? I'm not sure, it's, <laughs> but I think those are the same thing. i mean, sorry, I'm, I'm being
0: facetious. But I came to the idea that maybe there is no such a difference, actually. I think it's a quite shared feeling in France that this coverage has been absolutely a shame. First, in the New York Times, we read that a cop killed a man with a knife so this is a strange way to frame it honestly actually the jihadists just beheaded a teacher and the police was assaulted and tried to protect themselves by yes killing the jihadist. but more than that all the debates we have There are complex debates. We know perfectly the difference between Islam and Islamism. The French president distinguished all the time between Islam and Islamism, honoured the Muslim culture many times. And if you read the New York Times or if you read the Washington Post those days, you can think that Emmanuel Macron is the equivalent of Donald Trump and that he has just released a Muslim ban. It's absolutely not at all what is going on. Uh, The bill against separatism in France is not a Muslim ban. It's not targeting Muslims. It's just a simple bill targeting eight groups, Islamist groups, that inciting to hatred against Jews, mostly, but also secularists, but also women, but also gays. And this is what we try to do. We really try to just, protect ourselves from hate groups. And it has been portrayed as the contrary of that. It has been portrayed as a kind of systemic racism of Islamophobia. Like if after a rape, you accuse a woman to have too short uh, skirts. We felt the same, honestly, because again, terrorism didn't start in France. Terrorism is killing in every country of the world. All of this violence obviously didn't start with some drawings. People are not killed for being journalists or being a teacher trying to explain drawings. When the jihadists are, aren't killing teachers or cartoonists, they go after Jewish children, Muslim soldiers, black and Arab policemen, young people at cafes, and even recently in Nice, a black mother praying in a church. So you see, this is really the situation here.
1: Mm. So I think there's at least two different kinds of complaints, right? I mean, the first is just about the strange description of what happens, that somehow there's a squeamishness in American media about actually portraying some of these attacks, the way they happen, that what is you know, brutal beheading of a school teacher gets described as the police killing somebody, which is sort of an odd elision of the most notable event. I guess there's a second set of debates about laicity. So I think part of that is motivated by an American understanding of the French tradition of separation of church and state, and of course the American tradition also has an idea of a separation of church and state, but of a French rendering of that, which is often called laïcité, as being particularly problematic. What are the differences between the French understanding of secularism and the American understanding of secularism, and, and how does that play into this sort of media portrayal in the States?
0: Yes, we heard when you knew Emmanuel Macron went to an Arab channel to explain that uh, laicite never killed anyone. He has been mocked by many journalists and columnists who obviously confused laicite with a sort of Soviet totalitarianism or dictatorship of Afez al-Assad. That's quite of a mashup because laicite is only a law that protects the public space and the politic from religious fanaticism, and in the same time that protects uh, religion from being instrumentalized as a political tool. So it's just separation. Basically it's the separation that Thomas Jefferson, for example, tried to implement in the USA. We have almost the same definition in the law. The difference is in the society. We don't have the same society for very obvious uh, reason, historical reason. The fact that in France this separation helped us to protect freedom from the church. And in the USA, let's say secularism is more a way to protect religious freedom. That strikes
1: me as an important difference. That in the United States, the idea is that you cannot establish one religion as being state-sanctioned, right? So it's an anti-establishment clause. The idea there is that you very much can have a very rich public life of religion. It's just that you cannot favor one particular religious sect from within Christianity or you can't prefer Christianity to other religions. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that in France, there's a much stronger sense of the public sphere being free from religion. That it is not just that the state cannot actively prefer or prioritize one religion over another. It is that you're asking of citizens to present the secular face to society, even though they may privately be quite religious. And of course, that then ends up with differences, for example, about how the headscarf is treated in various public institutions and so on, where there's real restrictions, for example, on girls of 14 or 15 wearing the headscarf to school in a way that does not exist in the United States. So from your perspective, where does that difference lie and... Do you think the French model is preferable? Do you think they're both acceptable? How do you feel about the American criticisms of the French model?
0: I do think that the models work with their societies. I do think that the secularism in USA is clearly adapted to a land where many migrants came to find freedom and to protect their faith. I do believe that France is one of the few countries in the world. Where atheists and free thinkers can be more protected from fundamentalists than anywhere. We have a lot of Algerians, for example, that escaped from the Islamism in the 90s and came to France to be protected as political refugees. And they are the one today. I know it can be strange from an American perspective, but they are the one today who are the more vocals about defending secularism in France. But Don't get me wrong. Everybody can be vocal about religion in France. Everybody can practice his faith. You can be veiled in the streets. You can work as a veiled woman in many, 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 many jobs. It's the company who sometimes prefer to have a more modern face than a traditionalist employees. But it's not secularism. It has nothing to do with secularism in France. French laïcité doesn't forbid anyone to speak, claim, defend and even in a very, again, obvious way that is religious. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The only difference, maybe it's about public schools. Our public schools have this long tradition of implementing citizenship, the principle of equality. Also, it's very important. And this is the only debate we had exactly about, shall we authorize religious symbols that makes a difference between men and women inside a public school. Knowing that a century ago, even more, we took all the Catholic signs from the walls to protect the neutrality of the secular schools, to protect the religious minority from being under the domination of Catholicism. And actually, forbidding all obvious religious sign that distinguish men and women inside the public school was a feminist, more a feminist bill, more than a secularist one, if we want to be honest. And it was part of this story where the secular school has a specific philosophy where all the students shall be treated equally, no matter what is their origin, their culture, their religion. The teacher shall only see only future citizens and educate them freely. And this is probably why the beading of Samuel Petit shocked us so much. Somehow it's really the heart of the Republic who has been attacked. The teachers are the ones who are there to promote equality, to promote freedom, to unite the youth of France. But don't get me wrong, Yasha, because I know it's really hard to explain from an American perspective. It's very hard to explain in USA. Again, there is veiled women in France. No problem with that. Again, they can work, they can be free to express their traditional face this way. As a feminist, I have an opinion on it. As a secularist, I will never forbid it in the streets, in many, many mid places, except public schools for the reason I just said. But again, there is no link between this laïcité and the terrorist attacks, not at all. Religious fanatism is striking all over the place, all over the planet. When the 9-11 occurred, remember, and I read that in France, so I know the feeling of the Americans at this time. Remember that some leftist French newspaper considered that somehow the USA with their foreign policy deserved it or somehow launched it. This is just unfair. Not a single foreign policy can justify 9-11. French laicité and 12 drawings cannot justify the behaving of a teacher. We try to explain simply that, try to explain to his students that They can be offended by some drawings. They can be offended. It was part of the discussion. It was part of the debate in the class. As long as they don't answer with violence. And it's part of the public school curricula.
1: So let's distinguish between two different things, right? There's a normative claim here that's parallel, and there's an empirical claim that's parallel. But I think they have a slightly different status. So the normative claim about 9-11 It was quite common among the American left as well. There's a lot of people on the American left who basically said, we had it coming to us. And there's a lot of people on the American left who said, Charlie Hebdo had it coming to them. And I think both of those are disgusting, absolutely unacceptable sentiments. Now, there's a version of that claim that's more empirical, right, that is making a claim about America attracting wrath around the world by its foreign policy. And one smart way of reducing the likelihood that America will be targeted by terrorist attacks being changing foreign policy. Now, I'm skeptical of that claim too, but it strikes me as less obviously morally loathsome. It's an empirical claim, it's either true or not. I think there's some good reason to think it's not true. But that seems to me to be within the realm of something we can seriously discuss. So let's look at France as well in a similar sort of distinction, right? Again, the normative claim that I have seen sometimes explicitly and sometimes between the lines of, oh, well, France isn't coming to them because it's only because of whatever they do wrong and how supposedly racist it is and how supposedly unfair lies it is, uh, that this sort of stuff happens. So they sort of deserve it. That's absolutely beyond the pale. What do you say about the empirical claim that France has done less well at integrating immigrants or that somehow it has more of a parallel society, that somehow it has more young people who feel disempowered, who feel like they're the margins of society than other European countries because it has a different understanding of separation of church and state or a different understanding of secularism or a different set of policies. Do you think there's anything at all to that? And if not, why not?
0: The level of integration of migrants in France has very low to do with laïcité. You can critique France for having a slow social mobility, that's probably the heart of the problem. Uh, Having an economy that requires a lot of backgrounds. If you want to succeed in France, you need a lot of backgrounds, you need to possess the cultural codes, you need to speak perfectly the language, you need to have a network. That is all true and fair critics, honestly, to the French model. And this is where probably where the American model is much more effective in integrating. You can become someone very quickly. You can succeed very quickly because it's a more business society, let's say. It's all about business. If you are effective, you will succeed. It's all about also being performative, uh, working hard. Now, France is a more aristocratic society somehow. Uh, you need the background. You need the codes. You need the networks. This is all true. But it has nothing to do with laïcité, really nothing to do with laïcité. Again, the most vocal and strong secularists in France are from Algerian background. They are perfectly integrated, believe me. They are more French than us, more French than everyone, not directly a child of immigration. And they care about secularism. I'll give you an example. For the last weeks, there was a manifesto signed by more than one hundred. Intellectuals and Muslim personalities, not a word inside some American newspaper, that explain instead that secularism was targeting Muslims. The highest Muslim authorities in France supported the bill against separatism because they know perfectly the difference between Islam and Islamism. The Muslim first know the difference between Islam and Islamism. They pay the price for decades. Islamism is killing in Muslim country since decades, and when we are fighting to protect freedoms here, it's with Algerian, with Moroccan, with Tunisian, with Iranian refugees. So the the only difference in terms of laicity, let's say, between laicity and secularism would be when we saw, for example, the spiritual counsel of Donald Trump. Praying for the angels to change the election outcome, that definitely cannot happen in France. That's for sure. Maybe if tomorrow Marine Le Pen is asking a spiritual council to do that, it won't be forbidden by the law. But she will lose even inside her camp because everybody will laugh. That's laïcité. Laïcité forbids politicians to play too much the religious card because we think it's not fair. You manipulate emotion, you try too much to play the the feeling card, uh, so you have to stay rational. For example, if you want to fight against abortion, you need to argue with reason. Maybe you do it because you are Catholic or because you are Christian, but you cannot invoke the Bible to defeat a right for all. It's impossible. You need to argue inside the parliament. Uh, with reason and not in the name of the Bible. There is one person who tried to do that against the marriage for all. One day, one very Catholic deputy, she has been mocked for days because everyone, including inside the right wing, considered that it was wrong.
1: So, let me push you on a few more of the lines that people commonly criticize laicity for, and then I also want to make sure that we talk a little bit about what its advantages might be. One of them is about raising matters of practical accommodation that may just be useful for the everyday business of living together in a diverse society to a level of principle where people become unduly inflexible. So I'll give you a few examples of that. I know that at some public hospitals, if a woman arrives and she refuses to be seen by a male doctor because, for whatever reason, her religious beliefs forbid her from doing that. Some public hospitals will refuse to allow her to see a female doctor and send her away. Another example might be when you think about things like accommodations for women who want to use a swimming pool who may not want to share that space with men. That instead of saying, as some other European countries do, all right, look, on Wednesday mornings, it's just for women, the rest of the time it's for both sexes. Here, this gets raised to a level of, this would undermine the founding principle of a republic, it would undermine laicité, and so therefore we can't allow that. You know, another one, which was a political debate, I remember, in 2007, with both Ségolène Royal and Nicolas Sarkozy, actually on the same side of it, as I remember. The possibility of serving halal meat in school canteens, where, again, rather than saying, well, look, we have a lot of students who happen to be Muslim, and why not give them some halal food in the canteen, the objection was, Mm -hmm. again, that this would be sort of a violation Mm -hmm. of this principle. So I guess, is it true that that way of reading laicety and of raising these kinds of quite practical humdrum manners to the level of principle just makes it harder to accommodate each other and live together on a day-to-day basis?
0: Yasha, you raised very interesting points and you are quoting precise event and facts that has been completely distorted inside by the American press. So I'm happy to correct a few contexts of it. It's not in the name of principle only, it's about the situation we are facing, that it is hard to understand from abroad. I understand that. We are living in two complete different situations. In the USA, you can say that maybe the majority of the terrorist attacks and probably the main danger in terms of extremism is the extreme right. And we have this danger too. But on the top of it, what is clearly the first cause of the vote for Marine Le Pen at the National Front that we all fear Because for us, it's the main challenge to avoid that, to avoid Marine Le Pen to win the election because we saw what we've been through with four years of Donald Trump. And even if Marine Le Pen is a leftist compared to Donald Trump in real, we don't want that. So we have to resist in a different way to the constant provocation that some hate groups, Islamist groups are doing in France. And I know it's difficult to imagine from USA because it's not the case in USA. You don't have this radicalism constantly trying to provoke situation when you need to react. So, for example, there is plenty of situation where fundamentalist created so much trouble by asking that their wife in emergency situation only, only helped by female doctors. When they were not female doctors, one child is born with a disability because of that. So we decided to simplify the rule in emergency situation to say you cannot ask. But honestly, most of the doctors are trying to accommodate when they can. And we have plenty of situations like this. We are speaking only, for example, about public swimming pools. Why is it so? Because there is one municipality who accepted to have private timing only for female and in certain suburbs where there is a lot of radicalism, a lot of pressure coming from the fundamentalist, the woman from those suburbs who went to those specific timing inside public schools has been called whore and faced a lot of pressure. So it's a feminist reaction that leads us to say we cannot play this game. We cannot let the radicals pretend that a woman needs to be a swimming pool only with women or she's a whore. And I'm sorry, but when the serious journalists cover those affairs, they should be more precise. They should explain the context. And all the time, because they don't have the information or they don't speak French or they are not interested in explaining the complexity of those cases. They are putting American glasses on it and explaining as systemic racism. And honestly, there is racism in France, like in many countries in the world. But you can see at the rate, for example, the rate of the intermarriage between uh, different cultural backgrounds is the highest of Europe. If you look at the polls, when you ask to a family, do you agree if your daughter is going to marry a Muslim man, we have the highest rate of yes. The situation is bad on many points but it's not helping to read such a simplistic approach because it's an American approach, which I understand, but it's not the same situation.
1: So it seems to me that different notions of secularism each have advantages and disadvantages, I think. It's fair to push on the disadvantages of a French system, and I'm perhaps a little bit more critical of those than you are, and I think that was a helpful debate. I do want to make sure that we also talk about some of the advantages. One of the things that I'm struck by when I talk to young French people who have an immigrant background, or as we would call them in the United States, people of color for the French would walk at that formulation, and perhaps for good reason. I'm struck that they seem to have actually a firmer belonging in French society than when I talk to young people with an immigrant background in the United States a lot of the time. That actually there is a sense, not just that they're French, but that they're as French as anybody else. And that they have a straightforward belonging to society, which actually in some ways is stronger than in the United States. What do you think the French model of laicite gives the society and gives young people in France when it's working well for those people who... Don't feel alienated but rather integrated for those people who do have social mobility, perhaps, For not necessarily. You know, what do you think the, the advantages of the French model are that the American media or Americans looking at France might miss?
0: Again, I do understand that the French laïcite is not working well for fundamentalists, that's for sure. It's a protection for the modernist against the fundamentalists. So The good point of it is that it protects, actually, for example, the Algerian secularists, the Algerian atheists, or the Iranian refugees who came to France to escape from Islamism. They love laïcité because of that. And sometimes they are the most angry about the system, about the republic, when we fail to protect them because we are too kind with some fundamentalist demand. And you're right on the fact that For example, we have ministers today in the government that is leading the fight against separatism. Many of the ministers are from Arab origin, but we don't speak about that all day on the news. They are ministers first, they are French first. And sometimes it's really disturbing for us watching the American news that it's all about race, all about identity of the people speaking. And sometimes we I have the feeling that the identity is more interesting than the ideas. For example, I am more interested in the ideas of Kamala Harris. I'm super, super fond of the fact that she's the first vice president from Asian and Black identity. We all I think Barack Obama was loved and admired by probably 90% of the French, including the right-wing French, loved Barack Obama here. But again, it's quite simplistic to speak only about the identity of someone. So at one point, I think that everyone deserves to be considered and seen for its own personalities. So, again, the Minister of the Youth in France, she's from an Arab origin. She's leading the debate with the youth. And for us, it's mostly interesting to hear her than to reduce her to her origin. That doesn't mean that this universalist approach, and it's not linked to laïcité, it's a different kind of rhetoric, it's different, it's about universalism. And the French model is a mix between universalism and laïcité. Universalism do not mean that we don't point or name discrimination. We have a very strong law against discrimination. If someone would dare to incite to hatred against Muslims, and it happens sometimes, of course, you can be persecuted for that by our anti-racist law. So we have strong legislation, strong bills against discrimination. But in the public debate, more and more we become Americans. So more and more we speak day and night about identity. At the end of the day, my fear is that we import some words from the American debate some are necessary, some are progress, some are super interesting, but sometimes we're importing a way to be anti-racist that is crafted, that fits for America, but it's not very effective in France.
1: That's an interesting distinction you're drawing between secularism, or laïcité, and universalism. I mean, I think there is a relation between those two, obviously, the French model of laïcité is, I think, a universalist reading of what secularism might mean. But where do you locate the difference between those two? And we've talked about some of the advantages and disadvantages of laïcité. What do you think some of the advantages and disadvantages of a French model of universalism are and how are those different from the United States? I know that's a lot of questions in one go.
0: <laughs> laïcité is simply a law of separation between religion and politics, between church and state. It only protects again religion from political instrumentalization and politics from religious fanatism and domination. It's not an absolute law. Sometimes you have some politician and they are free to do so. They can use the religious card to try to seduce some voters. But the tradition and the fact that we have this strong habit of not playing that game too much help us to resist maybe more to some radicalism and fundamentalism. Not all the time, when the fundamentalists are very very active and furious like right now, of course we are affected. It's not exactly the same than the universalist philosophy. The universalist philosophy, and again it's not a law this time, it's not a law, it's a philosophy, consider that we need to name discrimination, we need to promote equality, by naming those discrimination an obstacle to equality, but we shall not assign people to their identity. They must stay free to present themselves the way they see themselves. If they want to say, I am a, a black French, I am a Muslim French, I am gay, I am Jew, they must be free to say it, but you cannot reduce them to it. This is for us racism, actually. For us, it's shocking. This is the beginning of seeing someone only through the most visible parts of his identity and to reduce someone to it.
1: Yeah, there was an interesting instance of that cultural difference, I think, at the time of the last World Cup when Trevor Noah you know, well-known comedian and host of a daily show in the United States, did a little skit in which he said, you know, France didn't win the World Cup. Africa won the World Cup because a lot of the French players were black and a lot of them had recent African immigrants. And the then French ambassador, he has been both an ambassador to the United States and to the United Nations, I think at the time he was the ambassador to the United States, you know, pushed back against it and said, actually... Uh, that is a form of racism, or at least it's untrue. These are French players and they're just French. And actually, the people who in France would emphasize, oh, look, they're not really the French team, but the African team, it would be the Front National, would be Marine Le Pen. And the American public was sort of on the side of Trevor Noah, in part because Trevor Noah is a comedian and it's easy mm-hmm. to be on the side of a comedian rather than the ambassador. But that I thought was an interesting illustration of that difference you're talking about. And I certainly see a little bit of each point. I mean, I see sort of that Trevor Noah made a joke and it was in a comedic context and I certainly didn't find what he said offensive. But I did also appreciate the point from the French ambassador to say, no, these are Frenchmen and we do not distinguish between them. To distinguish between them and say some of the African, because the color of their skin is black, is in fact a form of racism, is in fact a way of denigrating the extent to which they do belong to the French nation.
0: It's a very interesting point because it's exactly... The rhetoric of Marine Le Pen, trying to say that some French players are not really French and more African than French. So this is why we were a bit offended by the remark of Trevor Noah. But in the same times, as you know it, we are not offended by comedian and we can understand that it was a joke, but it illustrates very well the difference of perception. And again, I do believe that the two contexts make sense. We have a fight in France, we have a struggle, very hard struggle, but very open struggle between two ways to be leftist. The universalist left and what we call the identitarian left, what Markilla actually called the identitarian left. And yes, there is an intense debate between us because we don't have the same strategy against racism, for example, and against fundamentalism. And you have the identitarian left probably more close to the American left or close to the identity-politic left that try to say that because of the risk of racism, we should keep close eyes on fundamentalism. And being part of the secularist, universalist and anti-racist left, I do believe the contrary. I do believe in France at least, I don't know for USA, but I know that in France, the best way to avoid Marine Le Pen and the extreme right, is to have a very brave left with open eyes about fundamentalism and radicalism, to oppose secularism to fanatism instead of hate, instead of racism.
1: So take us inside the debate, because I think so far we've talked a little bit about a sort of transatlantic debate between France and the United States. It's very helpful, I think, to our listeners to understand something about the contours of that discussion within France. So. What is it that the identitarian left would change about the country? Or where do those fault lines lie? And how much influence does the identitarian left at this point have in France? Is it a marginal phenomenon or is it actually quite influential?
0: The identitarian left is more and more vocal in France than it used to be. It's not well seen, I must say, too much. Because every time that someone is using too much an identitarian approach, it helps a lot the National Front, because the extreme right is also identitarian. They have the same categories of thinking, except one is on the good side because the identitarian left is on the side of minorities, which is fine. But frankly, we fear that the National Front can win the election and use those categories to speak to the huge majority of French who feel that their identities is at risk. It's a little bit the same phenomenon then with the Trumpism. Trump used some simplistic categories of the identitarian left to speak to the white American, underclass American, and probably win some votes there. So this is where the universalist left tried to change the game by saying, no, 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 it's not a question about identity. It's not a question about being Muslim or not being Muslim or being Christian or being white or being black. The only question that matters truly is equality, freedom, fraternity, which is the mantra of the French Republic. So we need to protect freedom and liberties from fanatism and radicalism. And we need to protect equality from discrimination and social injustice. It's just a question of words, but words change the conversation. And also we want to continue the conversation because we can see very clearly what the extreme polarization is doing to democracy. I mean, democracy are dying of it. They are very, very sick of it. So this extreme polarization is helped on both sides by identity politics the identity politics of the minority and the identity politics of the majority. And I'm telling you, Yasha, I'm coming from the gay lesbian movement. I fought all of my life for equality. I led the fight for marriage for all. I've been beaten in the streets by neo nazis calling me faggots. I know what discrimination is. I know that in France, the best way to obtain equality is what I've done for the past 20 years, and it worked. We obtained the marriage for All, now we are completely equal, it was not the case when I was young. So the best way is to invoke equality, 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 equality. Never pretend that you need to be respected for your identity. No, I don't need to be respected, I don't want separate rights, I don't want privileges, I just want equality. That works in France, really. At the moment, you change the tone of the conversation and we have a difficulty because, for example, the New York Times and the Washington Post, they love to give the mic to always the same persons that are speaking like if they were living in the USA, speaking about white privilege, speaking about police brutalities. We have police brutalities, but I give you an example. There is 10,000 persons killed by the police in the USA per year. We have 10. 10 per year. And most of the police brutalities do not concern black person. Not the past years, because the police brutalities were more about the protesters of the yellow vest this year. So it's not really racial issues. You cannot compare, for example, as I've seen it in many newspapers, the case of George Floyd that we all watch. The dehumanization of George Floyd by this white policeman was absolutely disgusting a pure clear case of systemic racism as it is a pure case of systemic racism when black voters have to wait hours before to vote because in their area in their neighborhood there is no exactly all the machine working correctly to vote this you can call it systemic racism but in france the situation is slightly different we have Prejudices from the colonial area. We have an anti-Arab feeling we need to contain. That, of course, mutated to an anti-Muslim bigotry since the terrorist attacks, since the 9/11, actually. And we have a strong, strong, unfortunately insidious, but not only insidious and violent radicalism, Islamist, not Muslim Islamist radicalism, growing up, trying to provoke situation where the extreme right can, at the end of the day, win the game. i give you just a single example of this information I've read inside the American press about the situation, actually on the website of CNN. I've read that we had an Islamophobic attack in Paris at the Eiffel Tower that no one spoke about, like an example of the systemic Islamophobia in France, actually an example that led an Islamist organization in America to call the American Muslim to not go to France, to not be persecuted. Is it a joke? Is it a joke? We are speaking about a dispute between four women about noisy dogs. And two of the women started to be violent. And yes, with a knife. And it was a very brutal attack after a long argument and dispute with racist comments. This is clearly a hate crimes, but it's not an Islamophobic terrorist attack that you can compare. And I've read that, that you can compare to the behaving of a teacher by a jihadist. You cannot put those facts on the same level. If not, we shall, how we should react. It's like reading in a French newspaper, for example, a call to the French black citizen to not go to USA because they can be killed by the police there. It's a reality. Being black in the USA is dangerous. If you are arrested by the police, you can die. We are not going to call the French black citizen to not go to USA. You imagine the reaction of someone reading that in a newspaper. A French organization of black citizens called them to not go to USA because it's too dangerous for black person. This is ridiculous. This is what we have read on the CNN website. Don't go to USA if you are Muslim, don't go to France if you are Muslim, because you can be persecuted. This is a joke. This is disinformation. And it's part of those propaganda that are leading to poison cultural misunderstanding. And at the end of the day, it's putting us at risk, because right now we are in the middle of a crisis when there is many, many people who are reading those news, believe them, and call for boycotts for France. Hmm.
1: Over the last few weeks, we've heard a lot of unsolicited advice from the United States for France. A lot of newspapers and so on telling the French what they're doing wrong and what they could do better. If you were going to assume the same chutzpah for a moment, what advice would you give Americans for American discourse about some of those questions, for American discourse about Integration of immigrants, for example, for Martin discourse about terrorism, for Martin discourse about freedom of speech. What advice would you give to Americans from a French perspective?
0: I'm not sure I'm allowed to give advice, and I don't want to do cultural imperialism as we suffered too much from it. (laughs) But I'm just going to speak a little bit like you, Yasha, as a specialist of populism. Because basically, this is also my experience working on populism since 20 years. Teach me a lesson that we cannot speak only in a way that please us when we are leftists, Sometimes we forget that the world is full of different opinions, that there is still people out there to convince that equality is a beautiful dream. And the best way to convince them to join that dream sometimes is not to accuse them because of their identity. I must say, watching the presidential election, when I saw that after this beautiful moment of demonstration for George Floyd, that we had in France too, a lot, lot of big crowd demonstrating for George Floyd against racism. But when I saw little groups, radical groups going to cafe, going in the streets, forcing people because they were white people to scream what they wanted to hear by force, uh, shouting at them. And in a COVID situation, it's really not polite to scream on someone so closely to force this person to think the way you think. Of course, it's just a few groups. It's just some radicals using the beautiful movement of Black Lives Matters, but. I'm working on the propaganda of the extreme right. I know what they can do with those images. And my fear was that it could have helped a lot, the campaign of Donald Trump. So sometimes, even if we are on the good side and we think we are on the good side, everyone thinks actually they are on the good side. We still need to have this generosity to convince instead of imposing, instead of canceling, people who disagree with you. And I really think we are stronger when we continue to defend freedom, freedom to speak, freedom to disagree, that we can sometimes agree on the fact we disagree. This is what Joe Biden tried to do when he said, stop to transform your opponent in an enemy. He know that this polarization can kill him one day, almost destroy the American democracy. He know that, he know that by heart. I think it applies to everybody. We should all be very careful about not simplifying all of these very complex issues. We should be modest sometimes about the fact that maybe there is a different way to fight against racism, depending on the context, depending on the situation, than when you are facing both fanatism, radicalism, terrorism and racism. You need to adapt, you need sometimes to be strategist, to fight both, all the dangers in the same times. Respecting that diversity, respecting that complexity should be what, for me, a progressist is. But today, honestly, there is what we are watching, what I'm watching, sometimes reading, and I'm spending a lot of time reading the American news. It's a kind of simplistic woke morality that I feel is so helpful for the extreme right. It just help people to feel, okay, it's all about identity, being black, being white. So I am white. Then I am on the side of Donald Trump. No, come on, anti-racism is not about being black or white, it's being together. It's about being together against racism. And we need white people to understand that they should be on the side of fighting for equality. If we exclude people on the base of their identity, if we don't want to hear them, if they are even forbidden and sometimes to be clumsy and sometimes to say things not completely perfectly, then there is no conversation. If there is no conversation, there is no persuasion. That's a kind of (laughs) dedication to your work.
1: (laughs) Well, excellent. On this unduly flattering note, Caroline, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and thank you for the important work you do.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.